what they typically say, and this is already a rather subjective or softer psychological perspective, is that people over time um, more readily adopt a set of beliefs and attitudes that possibly desensitize them towards means of, of violence, that uh, possibly reinforce um, attitudes that specifically downgrade other members of society or societal structures. And again, it's this incremental journey um, on, on, on a rather large spectrum. And at some point, at some point, you cross the threshold where you start doing too many things that really get you into trouble. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with Dr. Jens Binder. And Jens is Associate Professor of Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. His research focuses on online literacy and factors that enable individuals to have more positive, safe and secure online experiences. He's uh, in an ongoing collaboration with HMPPS, the prison service, investigating online radicalization and offender risk assessment. Thanks very much for coming along, Jans. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It's really good to get the chance to have a conversation with you, Jans. So can you tell us something about your career pathway? How did you become interested in people who commit acts of terror? That, that's a good question to start with, because it was by sheer accident, you could say. Um, so I am mostly interested in people's use of digital technologies. And of course, these days that could mean anything. It could also mean, for example, um, getting onto a um, offender trajectory. And in this case, uh, this project to me started out with questions surrounding online radicalization and um, how easy it is for people these days on the internet to consume content that maybe at some point supports uh, a radicalized mindset. Um, other than that, I had no specific reasons. Um, as I said, it was more accidental. And I think this is work that's been going on for about five years now. And who would have thought? Yeah, it sounds like you're well, well into it. Um, perhaps for the sake of ease, we should be defining what terrorism is and what's, um, when we talk about people committing these kind of acts, um, is your research concerned with one ideology or several ideologies when it comes to terrorism? Yes, definitions, all the concepts in this domain, whether in the academic discussion or among practitioners, all the concepts are contested. So you typically find very general definitions of terrorism. It must be something that is very systematically um, targeting either um, societal infrastructure, state infrastructures, um, systems of governance, uh, so very often you see a political background, sometimes you see something that's akin to a political background. The underlying ideology doesn't matter that much. And also the um, data that we're actually concerned with uh, is not on one ideology in particular. Instead, we've got to rely on a lot of pragmatic definitions. They are delivered to us by the legal context. So the UK Terrorism Act, we have tech offences and then tech-related offences. Um, some of them are conventional, prototypical terrorism. So that's what we typically have in mind when we start talking about terrorism. Say, attackers plotting some devastating act of mass violence. Uh, sometimes these forms of terrorism from a legal definition may appear to us as comparatively weak support, facilitation, propagation of material, again, falls under the UK tech legislation. So it's a wild mix of things. Thank you. What, what's the difference between um, an act of terror and a hate crime? Is there any overlap there? Yes, certainly um, a large degree of overlap. Um, 
hate crime, again, could be directed against particular groups in society, um, may not be underpinned by a very systematic or elaborated or well-developed ideology. Could be that um, it is more like some fixation of the individual, possibly then fed by wider ideological beliefs. Um, if it's not so much targeted at the particular societal structure, but really just an expression of extreme dislike of social target groups, you are much more on the side of hate crime. But there will be a gray area in between terrorism um, and, and hate crime as such. So it sounds like the, the quite often the, the ideology might be more about the individual's own group rather than the group that they're targeting as such. Or the, an ideology could encompass a wider belief system how one's own position or one's own group is influenced by the way things are, the way things have been set up or the way things are maintained by those in power. Thank you. Thank you. And just another kind of like um, differentiation. We, you know, this week we've had, yeah, there's been yet another school shooting in America, hasn't there? Now, do school shootings, are they classified as acts of terror or are they, are they seen as different? Are there any similarities in, in mindset? Well, legally, they're certainly classified mostly as something else um, because they fall much more readily under other established categories like mass homicide or mass violence. Uh, now, I'm a psychologist, so I like to adopt a more psychological perspective. And there are some wider frameworks that supposedly help us understand better what's going on there. And um, a common element or one that is in that common area between, say, high school shooting or mass homicide and an act of terror, its violent expression, uh, is quite often the element of grievance. So you find that um, people feel they are in a disadvantaged, disadvantaged position in society, either themselves for individual reasons or because they're members of a group. They are certainly... Um, victim of, of injustice, of unfair treatment. So grievance essentially means you develop the idea that you've got an ax to grind. Um, and this very often um, happens for um, both types of violent terrorism and then mass homicide. And some people have argued that we should actually see um, these offenses as, as part of this, this spectrum that transcends the legal categories. Thank you. That, 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 that's helpful. And if we were kind of so then just thinking about acts of terrorism within the, the UK, how common are criminal acts that would be classified as acts of terror? What well, kind of numbers is, are we talking about? That, that is that is the positive news, I'd say, or well, you can judge for yourself. So what are we looking at? Um, we've been looking at close to the complete offender population at least in England and Wales, um, with risk assessments for those available from 2010 until the end of 2021. So we've got data, more or less complete data, that span more than a decade. How many people are in this data set? 490. So over 10 years, more than 10 years, 490, at least individuals who went to court, um, who got sentenced and to then, for wider reasons, um, yielded data that we can analyze. So you could say that it's not so much. In that data set, we have 144 individuals that are identifiable as attackers in some form of attacker role. Again, you could say, well, um, 144, we are a large country. That may not be that much, or you could say conversely, gosh, that means uh, on average, you get uh, one to two people sentenced each year for something that could turn or that has turned into serious violence. I think that's for us to judge, but it's certainly not the case that we're looking at a very large target group, which makes some of the analysis and some of the speculations actually quite challenging. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jens. So You've begun this, but can you tell us about your research and how you go about it? Yes, um, 
Of course. So the research itself that keeps us busy um, rests on the analysis of risk assessment reports. Um, and these are mandatory reports um, that uh, need to be produced for everyone sentenced under the UK tech legislation or for tech-related offences, which means they've got a little marker next to them uh, saying this may be related to terrorism. What then happens is that um, professionals, so experts in their fields, trained forensic psychologists or trained senior probation officers, um, basically sit down um, within HMPPS and try and piece together an account of, firstly, how the individual ended up where they are now, and secondly, what sort of risk levels are involved with a particular case. And we focused on the first time reports. So they need to be done within a certain time frame once the individual has uh, entered the penal system. Um, and they are concerned with a lot of the background history. Very often this involves um, interviews with the individuals themselves. Um, most of them collaborate um, to this extent. And it also involves um, a lot of interesting file material. And a lot of this is typically not accessible to, to the public. It's made for internal use. So we've been granted um, access to the reports. Um, my main collaborator within HMPPS, Jonathan Kenyon, is actually working within a center for counterterrorism, rehabilitation and assessment. So um, there are, these are agenda points within uh, the prison probation service. Um, and we've started content coding these reports. So what's in there? What can we piece together? The main question was about the particular radicalization journey. Um, and this is where we get back to my own expertise. Was this mostly through online influences or almost exclusively through online influences or through uh, more traditional face-to-face -face avenues or what you would expect nowadays through a mix of online and offline influences. And this distinction, in as far as it can be made, I mean, you've got to infer a judgment from the files, from the reports. Um, this, this distinction has proved very fruitful because we found a number of rather systematic differences between these three pathway groups, as we've labeled them, an online group, an offline group, and a mixed group. Um, and it turns out that actually we carry lots of concerns about online radicalization these days. We've got some suspicions that the internet can set people down the path towards evil. But at the same time, um, it looks like online radicalization is also substantially weaker, you might say, than other forms of radicalization. And this is what we're now pursuing and what has brought up a host of other questions for us. Well, it's very interesting to hear that. And I suppose I am slightly surprised to hear you saying that there's a, a weaker association. Can I just check out something with you? The, the assessment that you mentioned at the beginning, there, that's, that's distinct from the OASIS, the normal kind of risk assessment tool that's used. It's a, it's a different yes. assessment tool. So, so the framework we're talking about is the extremism risk guidance, and that specifies a whole catalogue of risk factors, 22 of them, and this is why it's called ERG22+, plus, because you also have to write down a formulation, a narrative account that underpins any judgments made on those 22 different risk factors, um, and then you have wider domains of risk, um, and they are the ones that really generate further discussion, engagement, um, intent and capability. So um, this is a system that requires its own formal training, um, and it's also a system that has received already some um, internal research attention. So we know, for example, that it um, seems to do the job, roughly speaking, um, we know that there are some systematic associations between what comes out of this risk assessment and other indicators. Um, and um, in that sense, we felt obviously want to operate within this particular framework. It's in place for England and Wales throughout. 
Um, Scotland has an alternative similar system in place, but um, we want to focus on a consistent data set. Northern Ireland, when it comes to terrorism, is a different story altogether because of factors in the particular history there. Thank you, that, that's uh, very helpful. So if one works in the criminal justice system, one's often given the impression that people who engage in terrorism are, are very different from other kinds of uh, prisoners. And is this what you found in your research? That is very hard to say, uh, but let me come back to the general observation that um, what we call terrorism for our Western prison population um, encompasses a wide spectrum of activities and, and offences. So um, some of the people, I would say, um, are probably quite different from other offenders. There seems to be a sort of wider ideological course in place. Um, people seem to be ready to endorse violence on account of that particular engagement with an ideology. And maybe they have actually planned and in part executed some rather frightful things um, for, well, for something that doesn't seem to conform to your general motives for crime. However, there are also lots of people in this data set um, who are probably not so different from many other individuals that, we, that you will encounter, uh, maybe because their actual level of engagement is not that high to start with. Maybe they never moved anywhere near attack preparation and attack planning. Maybe they've been helping out a friend and should have known better. Maybe they got into the wrong sort of online propaganda, disseminated material, downloaded material, made it accessible to others, signposted to others, overdid it, got caught, and then sent to prison. Are they now your classical terrorists, or are we looking at something else? I suppose that um, some people need to be classed as highly dangerous, others not so much. So you make it sound as if, uh, for some people at any rate, it's a matter of chance or bad luck that they fall into this particular pathway. But what do you think makes people vulnerable to committing acts of terrorism? Yes, um, for one thing, we don't know about any strong and clear-cut vulnerability factors. That's the standard problem of profiling when it comes to extremism and terrorism. Detection um, in the sense of counter-terrorism before offenses happen is a very hard nut to crack indeed. I'm actually quite relieved that we are looking at this more from the perspective of rehabilitation. We know where people are. Whether they're always in the right spots in prison is a very interesting question to ask. Um, and in terms of vulnerability factors, well, we've started characterizing particular trajectories. Um, for example, um, a lot of people in the online group, um, which we know carry the lowest level of assessed risk, by the way, a lot of people in the online group um, have probably followed a mostly unspectacular journey of small incremental steps. You try and figure out what is it they've done online that got them into difficulties. And what you find most of all is that first, well, they um, started out with open social media platforms, with um, content that is um, accessible to most users. Uh, maybe they got recruited away to some other more hidden parts of the internet at some point. Um, maybe they returned to more open activity when they um, engage in propaganda and dissemination, but it doesn't feel, as I said, very spectacular um, in that specific sense. We do know that people who really get hooked on the things that make you an extremist, and they are in, the, in this online group, well, they do show um, the highest um, incidence of mental health issues. Um, and in general, the sample has a substantial uh, prevalence rate. 
um, they do show poorer social connections. Um, anecdotal evidence always has it that uh, maybe some of these people toyed with the idea of becoming something more adventurous, toying with the idea of joining an organization, were not successful, um, were thrown back to online activity. Um, we um, know that overall, once they are in prison, they actually show the lowest levels of engagement with the particular ideological force or with a specific group that's motivated by such an ideology. So some people really have a fairly low profile, but it seems that this speculation, they have been looking for something online and that maybe such an extremist ideology stepped in and filled or um, addressed a particular need that otherwise they weren't able to meet. So these stories start unfolding once you try and make sense of the data. It's interesting because I've wondered about um, with some groups, especially I think where there's some kind of religious um, element to it, that what you often see in prison is you see people who you see people who've come from families where there's quite a normalization of a criminogenic lifestyle. And I think just reading about the histories of um, people who were involved in terrorism in Northern Ireland, for instance, it seems as though the criminogenic aspect wasn't there, but there was maybe anger and um, distress as a consequence of similar factors like child abuse and neglect. But in a way, the religion kind of legitimised a way to have a, an angry outburst in a way that crime wouldn't have been possible for that for that person. So you know, you, you wonder about, for some groups, whether it, whether that legitimizes things. Yes, I mean, that, that is, all of these are very good questions, because what we find is, uh, in particular, when analyzing the background histories, um, you can't, you can't dig very far into the past. So the further you move away into, say, early childhood, childhood and so forth, the murkier the whole story gets and becomes very difficult to extract something. Um, certainly, um, your very general indicators of vulnerability to crime are there. So um, friends and family supportive of some sort of ideological cause that leads into extremism. Yep, that is something. Um, and um, other factors in the immediate environment. So you do need to have that sort of opportunity and encouragement. Still, you could argue that all of this is actually absent for people who almost never ventured outside the online domain with this. Um, and we also have the, the counter stories, um, people from with a rather, say, stable background where you at first cannot glimpse any specific um, family circumstances, people who by and large have a fairly high level of education um, and, and yet there's something going on that makes them getting embroiled in a particular belief set or mindset. We know far too little about radicalization as a process. If we did, it would be much easier to say, ah, and this is where they got to a certain stage. And then they, they, they crossed that specific boundary and that's when the next stage happened. Um, but we don't have any stable theoretical understanding of how this exactly happens. What we typically say, and this is already a rather subjective or softer psychological perspective is that people over time um, more readily adopt a set of beliefs and attitudes that possibly desensitize them towards means of, of violence, that uh, possibly reinforce um, attitudes that specifically downgrade other members of society or societal structures. And again, it's this incremental journey um, on, on, on a la rather large spectrum. And at some point, at some point, you cross the threshold where you start doing too many things that really get you into trouble. It sounds though, Jens, as you're talking, it sounds like the, the impression that we're led to, there's a lot of discourse about terrorism and terrorists 
that might not be borne out in reality it sounds like you know you know we don't we don't really know enough but there's there's certainly kind of like a, a lot of assumptions being made i think well you get patterns emerging that's all right but um i've already mentioned thing, things like 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 narrative and and uh, conventional notions um it is very hard for me to say what is truly the reality behind a lot of these um stories um and um i've already said for some people the story is probably much less spectacular than you might at first um, assume um now, i was wondering whether there are any differences between people who act as lone actors and people who act in groups because you seem to be talking about possibly a, a craving for belonging and people seeking out a group to to affiliate with yes so i think when it comes to the degree of reality or what we imagine to be the case one interesting observation is that um, the research that is available on this topic um, is very often forced either to look at very small um, sample sizes or to engage in detailed case studies um, where we've got larger data sets and, and ours is one of the very large ones already. We've got large data sets. Very often these are uh, painstakingly pieced together by researchers or by curators of databases, mostly from open source information, which means um, media reports, no matter how specialized these are. And what we can notice here and there are some discrepancies between the reports that we're looking at and stories that have reported in the media. Uh, I myself actually don't have that much information about it because we uh, very much observe data protection and identifiability of individuals and so forth. But um, the few times where we looked at a triangulation of information, it's not the case that what you can piece together from media reports exactly coincides which which is um say contained as factual information in the risk assessment reports so we never quite know what sort of stories we actually get served surrounding specific individuals their backgrounds what may have driven them to commit an offense and the like now lone actors lone actors are probably um how shall we call it the most legendary type of, of terrorists. Um, we tend to think that they are the most dangerous attackers. They go mostly undetected because they're not affiliated with a particular terrorist organization. They seem to act on their own. Um, to all these things, you can say yes and no. Um, it is true that they are mostly in an attacker role. Um, it is um, true that sometimes it's not very clear where they got the ideas from. Uh, and it's also true that in some cases, it looks like they have been able to, shall we say, self-radicalize mostly through online sources. So that seems to suggest we have this sort of self-sufficient individual units that are highly dangerous. At the same time, again, we find that lone actors are not the most efficient attackers. Um, we find, for example, that um, in the whole literature on lone actor terrorism, a recurring theme is detection of such individuals, for example, through what's known as leakage. If people operate fully in the online world, sometimes it seems they also want to have an online audience which brings us back to psychological needs, which also means that in a surprising number of such cases, people have announced their attacks and have actually uh, given away part of their plans. Um, and we also, we also can see that uh, a lot of the attacks that have been planned online are part of plots that were eventually thwarted by security forces, which, which I think shows that people are 
detectable even online. It's, it's not the case that you're entirely invisible on the internet. So there are certain aspects of lone actors, their self-radicalization and where they get the ideas from that we need to question almost immediately as we start going through the, the figures and the numbers and the percentages. Thank you. Again, do we, do we get our risk assessments right then when we're trying to gauge the dangerousness of people who've shown an interest in radicalised groups? Because if I'm understanding you right, you're saying we just don't really, don't really have masses and masses of information. And that, that makes me wonder whether we're at risk of being a bit overzealous. Good point. I mean, make no mistake, uh, these people are where they are for a reason. So their level of activity must have been of a sort that made them liable to prosecution and to uh, becoming sentenced. So we can't really argue against that they've broken laws. Um, on the other hand, we can also see that the risk assessment that they receive by trained professionals uh, can be highly variable. So, well, that is in part a positive side of the story because it means we can um, direct our attention towards people who are more of the dangerous sort. And we can think of, for example, other rehabilitation measures for those who are classed at uh, particularly low levels. So in a way, you want risk assessment almost to be variable in order to give you a chance to work with people um, and to see what's, what's best for them and for society. The one question that is still open, and this also comes out of conversations from, from professionals and the like, the more research of this type you do, the more interesting opinions you encounter. The one point that's open is whether it's the best and most appropriate thing to treat all these people as radicalized extremists prone to um, severe terrorist offending. Most likely not. You could argue that although there's some engagement with the radicalized mindset, although there's some level of intent, um, although there are some behavioral signs that have been classed as an offense, that a number of these people are very unlikely ever to move into an attacker role or to be able to substantially support an attacker. However, if we contribute to a toxic online culture by making material accessible, by becoming a hub for dangerous ideas, that in itself seems to be um, enough of an offense, you could say. So it's a matter of striking the right balance. Thank you. And do we know anything about the mental health of people who commit acts of terror? Because it, it doesn't get discussed very often, and yet acts of terror appear to, to quite often be acts of suicide. Yes, um, I think that this level of violence is probably where mass homicide, school shootings and terrorist attacks meet somewhere. Um, so some people, according to their particular ideology, seem to be uh, prepared to die as martyrs or in similar roles. Um, in terms of uh, mental health and leaving aside, uh, for example, suicidal ideation and so forth, which may be a very peculiar um, aspect of the, of the ideology at hand, um, but in terms of mental health, it's not great. We find um, indicators of some wider mental health issue, uh, including personality disorder um, and, and so forth, for about a third of the sample across the board. And that is a high rate of prevalence in comparison to the population, uh, also in comparison to some other pr prison populations, although we know that mental health quite often pops up in the context of offending generally. Again, um, within this one third of the sample, uh, we find the highest rates in the online only group, which may indicate that people have a higher level of some sort of deficiency or struggling with their own personal challenges, 
Maybe that is one of the reasons why they're not so active face-to-face -face or why they're not just having the usual mix of online and offline exchanges. And now the interesting bit is that we have a sample at our disposal that allows just a little more detailed look at the figures. The one factor that gets discussed quite often for better or worse is autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. I can say a little more about this. And yep, that is one of the most frequent diagnoses or one of the most frequent um, disorders that's strongly indicated uh, in, in the sample. But it's also followed by things like uh, depression and anxiety. And you would think at first, that's not something that makes you go out and, and, and become an active um, terrorist. So there's probably a more complex mix of mental health issues going on there. Um, why autism spectrum condition? Hmm. The usual story says that maybe there is a particular allure to the online world that draws in people with specific types of um, autistic disorders. So for example, um, you have a very, you can, you can have a very well-structured online environment. You can go through large amounts of information almost as part of a catalog. Uh, you don't have to engage in maybe more difficult social interactive exchanges. Um, and, and there are a few more um, factors of, of that sort. Does this explain everything? Unlikely, if you just compare the suspected prevalence rate for um, autism-related disorders in the population, probably at a maximum 0.5%. It's more frequent than, than we used to think. Um, if you compare that to um, a certain percentage within our sample of 490, doesn't carry much traction as a predictive factor, but is something again to keep in mind for rehabilitative measures. Thank you. And Jens, this, I, would, I was wondering about the role of fantasy for this group and whether whether that's significant. That my that's my imagination that that would be um, relevant, but maybe it's not. Yes, fantasy. These things do come up in the extremism risk guidance. For example, there is a factor that tries to capture sense of adventure, camaraderie, um, the things that make working against the state exciting or working for your particular version of a religious faith. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certainly that element. We also know that um, grievance as a wider factor plays a role and that typically should come along with reinforcement of certain beliefs, why things have gone wrong for me, um, why uh, I am the victim of injustice, how all these parts of society go together to really do me in uh, and those things. So that must be a factor there. Um, and then of course, Again, if we're looking mostly at online activity, provocation. I mean, you are being very naughty if you are into a particular type of online content. Actually, lots of people are at that level of unruliness. That is, for me personally, a very interesting insight and a particular problem, given my usual domain of work. Um, you look at the little bit of documented evidence that's available. It's very difficult to quiz people on that. But for example, you can quiz people on what they've done as teenagers 10 years ago. Some of these activities are, are illegal. You find that, depending on certain groups, a scary number of individuals, scary percentage, have either watched beheading videos or share them with others, or use them as particular dares or challenges in their teenage years. And I think that is the case for almost any online content that can be classed as gruesome, outrageous, gross, 
and so forth. So there you have, unfortunately, a very easy entry point as far as exposure to material is concerned. Mm, yeah, well, that's a terribly interesting area and a pretty big area, I think. So maybe we'll come back to that in a later conversation. But this may be quite early days, I suppose, but do you think there's implications for treatment in, in, the, in the work you've been doing? Um, certainly for treatment. As I said, much less so for detection, because we still don't have any very clear profile for anyone who will at some point be sentenced under the UK Terrorism Act. When it comes to treatment, um, the first message, they're not all the same. Okay, um, you do find troubled background histories and so forth. Very often some type of factor comes up in their individual developmental trajectories, but they're not all the same. Um, the distinction between um, mere online engagement and a much more active offline engagement, I think is a useful one. Uh, it shows you at a glance what people are capable of, um, it's also expressed in terms of capability ratings assigned to them. Um, with face-to-face -face contact, you've got better access to information, to training, to equipment, and so forth. People who only study the internet are, by and large, definitely less dangerous, no matter how many instructions you can download these days for either procedures or for equipment. Um, the mental health issue, I think, needs to be taken very seriously indeed. Um, it's, there's certainly um, a massive need for figuring out what exactly is the matter uh, with individuals and whether there are easy ways of improving the situation, which will most likely empower them to take more care of themselves and have a more effective re-entry into society. Engagement is an interesting factor. It signals risk, but at the same time, if engagement with an ideological cause is something people need or feel they can need, is there something else that we can offer them? Just take away part of that motivating drive, uh, working against a specific mindset that's um, not only getting people into trouble, but uh, is most likely unhealthy. Can we, for example, through diversionary measures for alternative offers, can we work on positive counter narratives? I'm sure that some individuals need that, could need it very well, and they would help them. Thank you very much, Jens. So terrorism has, it seems, become quite a sort of sexy area to study. Does that help or hinder the work that you're doing? Overall, yes and no would be the standard answer, but overall I think it helps. I think it helps because what becomes clear is that you need this wider academic debate where all sorts of expert commentary exists and all sorts of empirical observations or theoretical analyses are made. We need this because otherwise we are more or less locked into definitions and procedures given to us by a legal framework, by uh, legislation and by the um, demands of, of a system that automatically then generates um, the task to, um, well, look after these people one way or another. Um, and in particular, um, the spectrum for um, violence in between mass homicide and terrorism uh, needs to be um, acknowledged and give us, can give us important pointers what to look out for, um, but also um, the various attempts at identifying prototypical trajectories or also specific behaviors. So um, 
I've mentioned um, leakage or signaling behavior at some point. I think this gives us some idea where in a particular process people become detectable or um, which are the behavioral alarm bells that we need to look out for. And for all of this, research is needed. Yes, sometimes it feels that you go in circles and round and round, and that after a decade, you haven't learned a lot of novel things. Um, on the other side, what's truly fascinating is, for example, how the online sphere has, has evolved. Um, based on our own work, online radicalization at the moment is the most frequent form that gets people into um, prison. Um, it may not be the one that comes with highest risk levels, so we may have a trade-off here in the end, um, but it's certainly something that we need to take seriously if we continue to apply the law. That means that these people are, in a certain sense, terrorists, and um, off you go to jail. Um, and this and, and all of the environment, the online environment, has been under such rapid expansion and also transformation and change that you see that in a short span of time, um, particular behaviors, online expressions, ways that information gets organized and shared online has been under constant change. Um, there's been an interesting back and forth development of the use of encrypted platforms and applications. So, yeah, people can be undetectable to a certain extent if they seek out platforms that have strong encryption. But then they lose any wider allure because they can't recruit from an invisible place. So people have talked about a particular online dilemma for terrorist groups and organizations. So level of visibility against level of security. Um, and, and this keeps changing almost every other year. It's, it's, it's usually fascinating. And it's one other very important aspect why we need research other than figuring out what's happening in our society and uh, what we can say based on the prison population. Thank you. That's fascinating stuff, Jens. Naomi, do you want to uh, wind up? Yeah, I was um, thinking about we we uh, we considered when I was working in a prison whether we should offer up some beds to um, prisoners that were in prison for for this kind of offence, and there was a, a real resistance of staff to want to do that because it was a, a fear of um, of what the implications of that might might mean. And I I wondered whether you'd ever felt frightened about studying in this area, and if so. How do, how do you cope with that and protect your own mental health? Well, in a way, I'm fortunate. I'm a desk-based academic mostly. So uh, I'm certainly um, several steps removed from any practitioner's environment. I can understand uh, some of the apprehensions um, because, for example, due to the very mixed nature of this population, you can't be quite sure what you're letting yourself into. Uh, we also know, and this is a far wider topic, we also know that secondary radicalization, so a radicalization happening within prison environments, uh, is, is an issue under constant observation and monitoring. Um, and then, of course, it may be that terrorist is a very particular label that creates an aura, a nimbus, in your environment for some people that might not be good let's put it this way myself well yeah it makes you it makes you wonder absolutely um and i console myself on one side with the fact that the numbers that we're looking at are by and large small at least that's how i feel about them so i know that we are looking at exceptional cases. I know on the other side that as far as online radicalization and extremism is concerned, um, this is very likely a tip of the iceberg um, phenomenon from that anecdotal evidence about exposure to explicit content. This, this becomes very clear. Um, I think as a psychologist, I, I'm fortunate enough 
to come with a sort of general resilience which may be professionalism, which may be personal practice, I do realize that a lot of the things that we want to explain are only explainable if we acknowledge that they happen on a very large spectrum of, of human experiences and human behaviors. So some of this stuff must echo within yourself must resonate within yourself. You start wondering what's going on inside people. Um, and that is, that's the general um, state of affairs that we've got to live with. The kernel of it or the, 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 the germation that is comparatively easy to grasp. No matter how gruesome some of these beliefs or attitudes or strong ideologies might be in the end, um, it's the realization that you're still a long distance off from where this start from where this stuff starts becoming problematic. So these are other thoughts that that I sometimes harbor about. Thank you. That's really interesting. Interesting answer, Jens. Thanks very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. No, I'm always happy to talk about the research and um, I hope it's informative and worthwhile, even when coming from a relatively boring university-based academic. Thank you, Jens. Thanks, Jens. That was a great conversation about a really quite complex uh, subject. So many thanks for that.